Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. Today we continue our conversation around Woodrow Wilson with part two of three. We have a number of guest contributors this week, including Emily Kilgore, Director of Education and Development at the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Museum, Andrew Phillips, the curator of the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library and Museum, and Elizabeth Karcher, president of the Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C. As always, Running Point is our very own resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. On this episode, we're going to be talking about various events that occur during his presidency. Woodrow Wilson is at the helm of the U.S. government when World War I begins. At the time, it was referred to as the Great War. World War I breaks out in the summer of 1914 in Europe. We have a series of episodes coming out on World War I. We aren't going to get too much into World War I in this episode. There's simply just too much to discuss. But definitely be on the lookout for those episodes where we'll be joined by a representative from the World War I Museum. But I would like for you, Emily, to discuss how Wilson responds to the outbreak of World War I and ultimately why and how the United States gets involved in the conflict. Two years into Woodrow Wilson's presidency, the Great War began in Europe, and although the Entente powers or the allied forces of countries like England and France asked America to assist, Wilson himself believed in staying neutral. Wilson saw himself as the president who could become the peacemaker when the powers at B were ready to discuss it, but he did not want personally to enter America into the war himself. Even when a German U-boat struck the British ship the RMS Lusitania in 1915 and sank it while the flag was flown of neutrality with Americans on board, Woodrow Wilson still chose neutrality, despite growing American support to enter the war effort. In 1916, one of Wilson's major campaign slogans was he kept us out of the war, despite sending financial loans to fund the war, as well as authorizing shipbuilding and the collection of war materials. War would eventually be declared only after the Imperial German government resumed the control of unrestricted submarine warfare against American shipping, as well as the discovery of the Zimmerman telegram, where Germany secretly offered to assist Mexico in reclaiming lands lost during the Mexican-American War. Wilson goes to Congress and gives an impassioned speech for a, quote, war to end all wars and states that it's, quote, America's job to make the world safe for democracy. So on April 6, 1917, Congress agrees to declare war. Wilson now has the job of getting the American people on board with this war effort that he voted originally to stay neutral in during the election, especially since he has to establish a draft to get men into the military to send soldiers over, as well as rain major funds for the war effort. Propaganda in the form of posters, as well as well-known images such as James Montgomery Flagg's Uncle Sam, as well as establishing liberty loan drives and utilizing terms such as victory and patriot, causes much of America to get on board. Wilson also brings in people such as Herbert Hoover to run the Food Administration to create propaganda surrounding rationing by having newspapers share recipes for meatless Mondays, wheatless Wednesdays, and even canning workshops and how to grow local gardens to help with the vegetable growth. Wilson's administration also supported organizations such as the Salvation Army and the Red Cross to push women as well as men and young children into the war effort through groups such as the United War Work Campaign and the YWCA. There is so much to discuss about World War I, and I do just want to add on to what you mentioned. 
when the war breaks out, the policy of the United States was one of neutrality at first. This was not our fight. President Woodrow Wilson said at the time that the nation must be neutral in fact as well as in name during these days that are to try men's souls. Within the United States, we have a multitude of immigrant groups that each sided with different countries. So this is a divisive issue. At the start of the war, the United States is neutral, politically at least. Economically, one could make another argument. American factories mass-produced goods for European countries. We are talking things like food, arms, steel, even oil. Trade grew seven times its pre-war level. Economically, World War I is very good for the United States. Just to give you some numbers, in regards to trade with the Allies, and of course, these are countries like France, Great Britain, Italy, Russia for a time before they leave due to their revolution. So in 1914, we're doing over $800 million in trade with those countries. By 1916, the year before the United States enters the war, that number grew to $3.2 billion. In terms of money loaned to allied countries, by 1917, that number is as high as $2.5 billion. So you have to understand that there is a lot riding on the success of those countries. We have a lot of money invested there. Now, we also loaned money to the central powers or the Entente powers, but much less. That number is about 27 million. For our listeners who love data, how do you like them apples, right? So economically, World War I, very good for the United States. Now, Emily also mentioned the election of 1916 earlier. This is an interesting election. For Republicans, Woodrow Wilson was elected president because of a divide, because of a divide in their party. Republicans in 1912 had to choose between Taft and Roosevelt, which allowed for Wilson, the Democratic candidate, to win the election. Republicans this time in 1916 put forth Charles Evans Hughes, who was an associate justice on the Supreme Court. He resigned in order to be able to run. Hughes was considered the favorite of the two candidates and even had the backing of former presidents Roosevelt and Taft. Hughes's campaign slogan was America first and America efficient. For Woodrow Wilson, his campaign slogans were America first and he kept us out of war. While he was still pushing neutrality, he was also pulling he was also pushing a sense of military preparedness. The United States needed to be ready if we were going to get pulled into this conflict. His platform consisted of, you know, support for women's suffrage, a peacekeeping organization of nations. This would eventually go on to become the League of Nations, which the United States would never join, spoiler alert, an end to child labor, amongst other things. And it was a very close election, but Wilson narrowly won. By 1917, events like the sinking of the Lusitania, continued unrestricted submarine warfare, and the Zimmerman telegram will make it impossible for the United States to continue to remain neutral. And so in April of 1917, the United States declared war on Germany, and we are involved in the Great War. In his message to Congress, Wilson stated the following, and this is a direct quote. 
The world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted on the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. Now, historians would have a field day dissecting that quote. Whether or not we had no selfish ends to serve, that's, of course, debatable. And again, be on the lookout for our episodes on World War I. But let's get back to Wilson. During his second term, most of the laws passed during his presidency were pretty controversial. The Espionage and Sedition Acts of 1917 and 1918, not since the presidency of John Adams and the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 had laws like these been passed. The Espionage Act of 1917 was passed after the United States declared war on Germany. The law allowed the federal government to arrest individuals whose opinions were a threat to national security. It was now a crime to convey information that would interfere with the United States' military's ability to defeat the Axis powers. The feeling was that the anti-war sentiment would undermine the war effort. Just to give you an idea, the law also allowed the Postal Service to refuse to mail anti-war pamphlets. The Sedition Act was passed as an amendment to the Espionage Act. The law prohibited certain forms of speech related to the war or the United States military. It was illegal to incite disloyalty with, within the military disloyalty to the government, the constitution, disloyalty to the military in general or the flag, whether it be in spoken or written language. It was illegal to advocate for strikes on labor production. It was illegal to promote principles that were in violation of the act or to support countries at war with the United States. These laws were enforced with the help of the Bureau of Investigation under the Department of Justice. Now, this department will eventually be renamed the Federal Board of Investigation, or the FBI, in 1935. Over 2,000 people were prosecuted under these laws, and those that were convicted were either fined $10,000, that was a huge sum of money, or they were sentenced to 20 years in prison. It's a little bit of an infringement on freedom of speech. However, during the course of a war effort, you might want to make sure that you don't have people who have infiltrated the population and are speaking against the government's efforts. And they're really not. Yeah, I, I kind of get it. Well, Benjamin Franklin would say something along the lines of those who are willing to give up freedom for safety deserve neither. So I think it's a slippery slope. But two well-known Supreme Court cases arise from these laws. You have Shank versus the, uh, versus the United States in 1919. Charles Shank, he was a member of the United States Socialist Party, and he mailed 15,000 pamphlets urging men to avoid the draft. He was arrested and charged under the Espionage Act, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Shank's lawyers argued that their client was merely exercising his freedom of speech. And the court made a unanimous decision in their ruling, and they stated the following. And this is a direct quote from the ruling. The Supreme Court said words which ordinarily and in many places would be within the freedom of speech 
protected by the First Amendment may become subject to prohibition when of such nature and used in such circumstances as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils which Congress has a right to prevent. So what that Supreme Court case determined was that there are limitations to our freedom of speech. One of the examples that's most commonly given, it's why you can't yell bomb in a theater or in an airplane if there isn't one that would not be protected under freedom of speech. The second case is Debs versus the United States also in 1919. Eugene V. Debs was a leader of the labor movement. He was a socialist and a former presidential candidate. He was arrested for giving a speech defending anti-war protesters. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He did not serve the full term. He served almost three years in prison before his sentence was commuted by President Harding. So people were punished pretty strictly under these laws. There were a number of major issues being dealt with during Wilson's presidency, which of course takes place during the progressive era. Prohibition was passed during his presidency. The Volstead Act banned the production, consumption, and sale of alcohol in the United States. We had an entire podcast episode devoted to the 18th Amendment, where we were joined by Travis from the National Prohibition Museum. And if you haven't heard it, give it a listen. It's definitely one of my favorites. It's actually our 50th episode. Now, today we are also joined by Elizabeth Karcher, who is the executive director of the President Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C., She's with us today, and we're going to talk with her a little bit more later on about his presidency and life and the home that the Wilsons lived in, as well as his death and burial. But I do want to take a few minutes for you to discuss the evolution of Wilson's views on suffrage. Absolutely. Um, I think so. We're now celebrating the centennial of uh, the 19th Amendment. Now it's actually 101 uh, years ago. Um, we put on an exhibition in the midst of COVID, we put on an exhibition outdoors uh, to celebrate the centennial. And we did a lot of research about Wilson and his position specifically on women and the 19th Amendment and um, his belief on their, their, their right to enfranchisement. And it's interesting, he wrote a letter to a friend in 1908 that said, um, women shouldn't have the right to vote. They, they don't have experience and they don't have experience because they don't work outside the home. And if we were to live in a world where women did have that experience because they worked outside the home, it would be a very different world than the world we know. And in 1908, there are many things about that statement that are correct. I mean, women of, of certain classes did not work outside the home. Um, it, it, you start to see, you know, the women working in the, the garment factories and uh, women who are actually, there are, there are women who have some jobs, but it's not really considered outside the home. By 1915, so he comes to Washington and uh, arrives on the train in Union Station with his wife, uh, Ellen, and their three daughters. And he's a little surprised, like there is not as much fanfare for his arrival at Union Station. Like, where is everybody? They're all at the suffrage parade a few blocks over. And he doesn't understand and doesn't really, it doesn't resonate with him that why would there be such such fanfare for a suffrage parade and, and not 
for him, doesn't recognize that this is as big a movement. And I think in part, it's because he has three younger, younger girls. They're not um, they're not of the age to be suffragists yet. His wife, Ellen, was not in support of the movement, as, as many women were not. What Many, many women did not support the movement. In 1915, he is called to go back to vote in his home state, which is in New Jersey. He's now president, living in Washington, goes back to New Jersey, and he votes for suffrage in the state of New Jersey. As president of the United States, he casts his vote. It's very public. You know, that is something that he supports. And he now, at that, 1915, he supports it state by state. He doesn't see or believe in a constitutional amendment to change that. By 1918, the world that he had talked about to a friend in 1908 is now very different. It is the different world that he said the world is going to be a very different place. In 1918, it's very different. The women, we've just gone through World War I, and women have made tremendous sacrifices. They've gone to work. And he addresses a beautiful and eloquent statement to gentlemen of the Senate, and he implores them to give women and franchise them. They have been our partners, and they have made sacrifices in this war. They've sacrificed their brothers, their husbands, their fathers, their cousins, and they themselves have sacrificed and worked uh, for this effort of the war. And to that, that's, and the world has turned upside down. And this is a very different place from 1908 to 1918. And that's really the evolution. And I think it's also hard to recognize the importance that enfranchisement would have on other things to come when you yourself have always had every opportunity. So as a white male, he didn't have to worry about being able to do certain things. And for women, the right to vote or having the right to vote, all of these other rights and not really privileges then, but things that we see are commonplace as education and the ability to hold a job in any industry, all of those things would follow but without having the right to vote, you don't have that clout to mm-hmm. demand higher education or admittance into law school or medical school. And I think it was hard to see beyond that, or maybe an unwillingness to give the right to vote because you didn't want all of those things to happen for women. That was Elizabeth Karcher. And thank you, Elizabeth. That conversation was recorded separately between Elizabeth and Jean and we inserted it into the podcast here. Next up... We are going to have Jeannie make a comment on suffrage and reference an older podcast. And then we're going to welcome Andrew Phillips, who will talk about the Spanish flu with Jeannie. Suffrage and the road it took to get there is such a complex and interesting topic. If you didn't get a chance to listen to our episode on the 19th Amendment, definitely carve out some time to do so. In terms of major domestic issues, Wilson had to deal with as president, one topic I want to make sure we discuss today is the great influenza or the Spanish flu. Andrew, can you talk a bit about the Spanish flu and how the United States responded to it? During Wilson's presidency, the world was hit by a major pandemic. The 1918 influenza, sometimes referred to as the Spanish flu, was caused by a variant of the H1N1 virus and led to the deaths of millions worldwide and over 600,000 in the United States alone. Wilson had very little to do uh, with the American response to the disease, but this was also at a time when citizens had a very different relationship to the federal government uh, than we do today. Instead, states and cities 
tried to combat the virus in many different ways and with varying degrees, uh, unfortunately, of success. Public health officials encouraged people to wear masks, avoid large gatherings, uh, and stay home as much as possible. Uh, Things that sound a bit familiar uh, from what we're dealing with today. But because they were recommendations and each city was doing them at different times as the uh, as the disease reached them we have wide discrepancies in how well various cities uh, responded philadelphia permitted hundreds of thousands of people to gather downtown for a parade after the disease was first detected in the area and around 16,000 would die in the following months St. Louis, on the other hand, closed restaurants, bars, and schools within two days of the first detection. And it's perhaps not surprising that they had one of the best responses uh, to the pandemic. Now, the Spanish flu would last for about three years as it raged around the world. And it is estimated that half of all Americans and a quarter of the world contracted the sickness during that time. It didn't end with any sort of medical breakthroughs. It ended because so many caught it that it did not have the destructive power it had had in the early days. Uh, That virus, H1N1, is still with us, and in fact, a different variety of it caused the swine flu pandemic uh, just a few years ago. Yes. Once a virus is out in the world, it is out in the world. In the midst of fighting a world war that the president had hoped he could avoid getting involved in, the nation was also waging another war, this time with an invisible enemy, The Great Influenza, or how it is most commonly known, the Spanish flu, or some countries refer to it as pneumonic influenza, hit the world. As we know today, influenza, which interestingly enough got its name in Italy uh, during the 15th century, it was named after an illness that was thought to have been influenced by the stars. Leave it to the Italians to romanticize an illness, right? But so this is a viral respiratory illness. And in 1918, we don't know that it's a virus. The thought was that it was caused by a bacteria. And this will become important when we talk about how they created vaccines for this pandemic and the hopes of ending it. And of course, the vaccines didn't work. Now, why is it most commonly known as the Spanish flu? It did not originate in Spain. Spain, which unlike most European countries at the time, did not get involved in World War I. It remained neutral. The press in Spain reported on the influenza pandemic in great detail, where other countries did not cover it as much. So many governments ensured the press even underreported numbers and downplayed the situation so as not to make people panic. In fact, many countries had even censored the earliest reports of the illness within their borders. This led many people to think that Spain was where it all began. The truth is there is no conclusive answer. Some point to the United States because of the fact that a group of soldiers had come down with this mystery illness at a Kansas military training camp at Camp Funston in March of 1918. There are known cases in Great Britain, France, and Germany as early as April of 1918. Some point to the terrible and unsanitary conditions that soldiers were living with fighting in the trenches in World War I. So as soldiers moved, so did the disease. As more and more men were called to enlist in the military, people crammed into local enlistment offices, people crammed into trains and ships, unloading passengers who would then spread the disease some more. It was a recipe for disaster. 
The numbers Andrew mentioned a few minutes ago are astounding. A true death toll isn't really known. There are some estimates of 20 million to 50 million deaths worldwide. There are some that think 50 million is still is still too conservative of a number and that the number is much higher. The disease had a 5% death rate. Now, it's similar to what we've been experiencing with COVID-19. It's very apropos that we'd be discussing it now because I just got over a second bout of COVID, which was even worse than my first, but I live to tell the tale. It lingered. It lingered. I still you know, don't sound right. So there are different waves of this illness. The second wave was deadlier than the first. Not only were they seeing the most vulnerable die, the very old, the very young, but they're also seeing young, healthy men and women die. The symptoms were your typical flu symptoms for some people, fatigue, fever, sore throat, headache, and cough. For others, it caused pneumonia, collapsed lungs. People's skin even became discolored, turning black or blue. Death from this disease must have been incredibly painful. People essentially drowned in their own fluids. Their lungs just filled up with fluid. It impacted so much of the population. There were even children's songs about the illness. Now, this one is my favorite. I had a little bird. Its name was Enza. I opened up the window and in flew Enza. How catchy is that? Mm -hmm. You know, not, of course, the only song about an illness. Ring Around the Rosie is, of course, about the bubonic plague. For those of you who didn't know that. Pocket full of posies. Yes. Ashes. Ashes. You know, ring around the rosie. There were red rings around the marks. Not only did members of the first family get influenza along with the general public and the world, but there were sheep that grazed on the White House lawn and on the White House lawn, and those sheep became sick with the great influenza. Now, animal lovers feel not fear not. The USDA took great care of the sheep, and they were back on the White House lawn in about two months. After a number of mutations, the strain became much milder, and eventually, by 1920, the worst was behind us. The disease became more manageable, and like Andrew mentioned, the strains of that influenza are still in circulation today. While at the Paris meetings trying to create a peace treaty that next April, Woodrow Wilson came down with what the White House said was a cold, but it was either that infamous 1918 flu or another stroke, which is what Elizabeth Carter from Woodrow Wilson House believes it to be. He had terrible coughing fits and spasms, but the diagnosis of the stroke really was kept a secret and his illness impacted the peace talks. Okay. Thank you, Jean Ann. And thank you to all of our guests. Next time we will finish up with Woodrow Wilson with our part three. This is Jimmy LaSalle. And thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.